This is Ryder Richards. Welcome to Let Us Think About It. Today, I am interviewing Zachary Seitz. He is a doctoral student at the University of Texas at Denton, uh, UTD, and we're going to be discussing global citizenship. So what does that mean? Well, we cover how to be a global citizen, um, especially when our globalized society is composed of multinational companies, but all, you know, and often the world is dominated by them, and nation states seem to be losing power. So, of course, this works for consumers, uh, those making millions and millions of dollars off consumers, but we need to also consider the people who are hurt by these systems who have been decentered or marginalized. Along the way, we discuss Marxian separation in the processes of labor, intentionally hidden costs for ease and comfort, of course, for our own ease and comfort at the pain of somebody else, and this comes into ethical consumption versus letting poverty exist. We also discuss humans behaving as machines, Charlie Chaplin, racist protocols and surveillance in the classroom, how animals factor into our humanity, and of course, how we should reconsider our systems of power and things like taxation. Now, digging in towards the end, Seitz discusses how flawed standardized testing is really quite antithetical to learning today and somehow takes up 15% of the school year for very questionable and narrow results. So I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoy it as well. Uh, let me know in the comments section what you think. Uh, see you at the end. All right, welcome back to Let Us Think About It. This is Ryder Richards. Uh, today I'm interviewing Zach Seitz, a buddy of mine, and we're going to be talking about global citizenship. So, uh, oh, and all that that entails. Zach, do you want to introduce yourself for us? Uh, sure. So I'm Zach Seitz. I am a social studies teacher here in the North Texas area and also a doctoral student at the University of North Texas studying curriculum instruction with a focus on social studies education. So that's kind of how I have come to understand citizenship and really thinking about what it means to teach citizenship to high schoolers, so or just to all students. Wow. Um, so I would assume to myself that citizenship is just sort of, you know, baked in to the society. So if we're teaching somebody something like how to, I mean, what kind of things are you focusing on? Yeah, that's a that is actually a really interesting question because there's a lot of things about citizenship that we don't even really think about when we're teaching it and things are baked in like in this you know most state social studies standards will have something in them about teaching students to be good citizens or you know sometimes even active citizens and so thinking you know well first of all what does it mean to be a good citizen what does it mean to be an active citizen but then like you said what does it mean to be a citizen and depending upon who you're asking, who you're talking to, that idea can look very different. Yeah. Um, I read something a little while back that most American citizens would fail the citizenship test. Yeah. Which I found hysterical. Right. <laughs> and it probably quite true, right? Because we just take these things for granted. Absolutely. And, and really, I mean, the idea that you can somehow quantify what it means to be a citizen and by asking someone who the... 13th president was you know i don't know who the 13th president of the united states was uh, off the top of my head hopefully Jason it wasn't Myers. abraham lincoln yeah. <laughs> yeah so it you know that whole notion of we're gonna you know quantify your knowledge like yes there's obviously some things that people need to know for example when i was in london a few years ago it helped to know instead of looking 
you know, for cars coming on the right side to look at the opposite side. And, you know, they had markers on the streets in, in London to check the other way for people like me who didn't want to do that. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And then I guess that's just a set of assumptions that yeah. because we grow up a certain way, we think a certain way. And I mean, when you're trying to teach this, are you sort of redirecting people or just sort of pointing out things that are obvious that they have forgot to consider? Uh, it, it both. I mean, it, it honestly, it's very situational. Um, so there are times where we're talking, you know, it's like, hey, what what are some issues that you see in your community might be a, a, a good, especially at, uh, for students who are in elementary school, whose, you know, lives are generally a lot more localized in their neighborhood. If you think of elementary schools, usually serve a neighborhood or a small city, um, you know, you can start there or, you know, even think, you know, to larger issues. And so it really just depends on, you know, what topic you're teaching, what they're learning about, what they're interested in. And um, it, it, it's just, it's, I don't know any other way to put it other than it just, it really depends. Um, mm. So. Uh, well, I guess let's maybe start it. Uh, when I think about being a citizen, like my, you know, let's leave off global for a second and yeah. we'll just talk about what it let's means start to be small. In, yeah. 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 Like, um, and not even super small, but you know, kind of national, let's say, yeah. let's say like what it means to be a national citizen. And my idea of some of that comes from guys like Adam Smith or somebody else who is going to talk about our commitments to the state and the state's commitments to us. And so there seems to be an exchange there that yes, we will pay taxes and follow your laws and you will protect us from certain things. Right. Um, and I'm assuming that, I mean, my assumption is that most of my rights come from this. If I'm a good citizen, then I can follow these rights that are guaranteed. Right. Yeah. And, and absolutely. If you think about it from an, that national perspective, you exist in a society, you are a part of those laws, um, whether you want to be or not, there are certain things that are, you know, you are expected to do. Now, does that mean you always follow them? You know, no. For example, the speed limit sign. Like, you know, I, I went two miles per hour over the speed limit on my way here. Oh, no. I know. But it, Turn yourself in. Right. I know. Sorry. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely things that you give up when you are a part of a society in terms of individual freedom. And I know that's something you've talked about before on, the, on this podcast. And just that idea of, okay, yes, I'm going to trade my ability to drive however fast I want for both the ability to drive on roads that are paid for by those, the city or county governments. And then also, so that way other people aren't just flying down and we have, you know, that safe community and, and, you know, in terms of, I know people, I know that generally people are going to follow safety laws and everything yeah. else. So, yeah. So that's, and of course that's always the contradiction, right? Is wanting your individual freedoms. You want the right to do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And then you have to balance that out with the safety of the populace. Yeah. And um, trying to find a happy medium between those two seems difficult. I think that it, it, you know, when we talk about safety, it changes a lot of things. But when we start talking about how markets work or what people desire and desire fulfillment, then it really does start switching up kind of how we see ourselves and what we want to do. And this would become maybe the part where you go from national citizen into something else is when you decide maybe you're going to go to a different country because they have different laws. Right. Um, or even, yeah, if you if there's things that you want to buy from another country or if you just want to travel there, yeah, it starts to um, definitely 
uh, yeah, I mean, how, how many people have we seen online posts about moving to a different country if so-and-so wins the election or different <laughs> right. things like that? And, you know, it's, and some people do it. Uh, you know, there's been, there were a couple really famous examples of people that left uh, post-2016 that I can think of. Um, but it uh, usually doesn't happen. Usually you're, you're kind of, most people are kind of where they're at because it takes an enormous amount of resources to uproot and move yourself out of the country yeah and then there's always the the grass looks greener because they have one thing that you're looking forward to right right? which may not be the current president and maybe if that yeah yeah it's interesting when you move based off of a negativity rather than a positivity right but if there was a positive change you're moving into then it tends to also be that there's negatives within that society that you just maybe haven't seen yet yeah or you've decided you're willing to live with those they're the lesser evil yeah exactly and uh yeah it's it's you know, every, any country you go to is going to have its issues that, like you said, it, it almost takes living there and being a part of that community to really understand um, those issues. Because it's, yeah, if you're from the outside looking in, you're never going to really know. And even I think when you do move there, you're still probably, it's going to take you a while to at least feel part of that community and yeah. to have others see you as being a part of that community too. Yeah, if ever. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, we... this is my seventh year in Texas, and I still feel like an outsider sometimes. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I guess I've been here since high school, so I've kind of, uh, I've moved in okay, but occasionally you still see something, and you just your brain shorts out for a second. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and other people will never see you as being fully Texan. So, <laughs> yeah, right. which you know, um, in other parts of the U.S., that's a great thing to not be Texan. Yeah, it's true. It's <laughs> so, true. Yeah, um, once again, it depends on your locality and your context. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, and and actually, that brings up a really interesting point because Texas, with its history you know, wasn't always a part of the United States. It was, you know, obviously indigenous land first, and then, you know, Spaniards settled it, uh, you know, and and there's the history we learn about that is very misleading and doesn't actually address any of the the issues that went along with, well, what does it mean to actually take land from people who are living here? Um, You know, if you look at the history of the missions if you ever travel there they tend to gloss over that fact but so you had indigenous citizens living in texas uh, from various different nations and then you had you know spanish settlers come in then you had uh you know people from the united states come in and then there was it was independent and then now it is a part of the united states and so um, and, and of course, was part of Mexico as well. Um, if you, you know, I'm sure I jumbled that whole timeline up, but <laughs> I never took Texas history, so uh, forgive me on that one. But uh, it, it uh, for any Texas history people out there, but um, it, it, if you think about, you know, people have been in Texas, you know, their families have been here um, longer than it's been a part of the United States. Um, you know, obviously, there's, you know, people I'm sure who are indigenous who've been here even longer than it was a part of any European country or settlement or anything like that. So, And then part of the thing about this is that everything is in flux. I think mm-hmm. that if we look at this on a timeline, we're putting in dots on this timeline, and what we're talking about is constant change over time. Right. And so what it means to be a Texan now is different than what it meant to be a Texan previously. Right. And as we continue moving forward, those changes, I think, will keep occurring, but We're also in this, um, and I'm just going to go ahead and jump into this side of it that's fussy, um, that 
we have to wonder sometimes, yes, we live in a nation, but that nation, like some of the biggest entities in, in it are national. Mm-hmm. So when you get into things like Amazon or Google or some of these larger corporations and you start thinking, maybe we're actually living in a system of corporate nations, right? Yeah. Um, and that the government itself is actually at the whim of these corporations. For instance, what was it? Apple recently moved their headquarters to Ireland, I think. Did you read okay. that? I, I it missed was this, that one. Yeah. yeah, it was the skip taxes, right? Yeah. So they no longer have to pay, I don't know, how many trillions of dollars in taxes they owe to America because their headquarters is a small building in Ireland, yet they right. continue to operate out of America. Yeah. So you run into these things where all of a sudden you could be part of the, and this is kind of the Margaret, Margaret Atwood, her Mad Adam series talks a lot about these uh, uh, huge corporations that set up gated communities. You live, mm-hmm. work, breathe, do everything within them. They recruit from the outside, bring you into these utopian worlds, right. and everything else just falls apart. Yeah, You don't care about states. You don't care about nations, anything else. It's all just um, these corporations right. that run you. And so there is this ten- tendency whenever global free market, neoliberal capitalism, blah, 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 yeah. whenever this spreads. Jero, are you listening? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, right. <laughs> Uh, whenever all of this spreads to a certain point, you just start thinking like maybe, you know, alignment with a corporation has more security and safety in it than yeah. alignment with a nation. Right. Well, especially if you work there, because that's where your paycheck comes from and uh, that's how you support yourself. And I'm sure if you live in a gated community, you know, like, for example, I'm, I'm thinking of a, this is obviously a satirical example, but the opening episode to... Um, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, Mike Judge's show, yeah. uh, that opening episode where it basically, Hooli is the obviously the fictional company that they all work at, but they have shuttles that pick their employees up from their houses and take them to work. And when they're there, you know, all their meals are taken care of. They don't ever have to leave. It looks like this, you know, wonderful utopia. And then you start to really peel it back and yeah. uh, get that critical look. And that I highly recommend that whole series um, for just kind of making fun of the tech industry um at, especially when it came out at a time before that was really a big thing that people were doing um yeah mike judge has had a way of setting uh, finding these things 10 to 20 years before they become sort of common knowledge or yeah. popular and sort of bringing them into it shows like idiocracy right or even Which Beavis and butthead okay um, yeah, Beavis yeah. And butthead, yeah. Classic. yeah right right <laughs> office space yeah uh, you know yeah. so these kind of things where you point out something that is a facet of life now that maybe we are just stuck in yeah, and you don't really think about it all that much. And it seems to have all the beautiful trappings that we want, but yeah. maybe there's some dark underbelly to it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also getting back to um, what you were talking about, about the multinational corporation and, and how they set up operations in different uh, places. You know, I, I was thinking about this today while thinking about what I was going to talk about and, the, one of the things I thought about was the car I drive is, it's a Honda, but it was manufactured. So it's a Japanese car company, but they manufactured it in Ohio. But I, I bought it in Texas, and before it was in Texas, it came from California. So if you think about those various, you know, different entities, and then all the American companies that are operating and manufacturing stuff overseas as well, um, it is very much a corporate world um, instead of a national, you know, nation state world. That we're living in and then who who is that working for whenever we're in this kind of framework where we have multiple nations involved and i'm assuming my first assumption is it works 
pretty well for the consumer due to lower costs. Yeah. Yeah, def- I mean, especially if you can afford the products that are being made. So it works for consumers and, and you know, who it's being made for. It works for, I would assume, the people making, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, Jeff Bezos, we're talking about you. Um, <laughs> or, you know, even, uh, you know, the Jobs family with, with Apple or uh, any anyone who kind of are, were a part of that. Or, you know, you just name the company and there's lots of money. Uh, to be made there if they're a large multinational corporation. And so it works for them. But one of the things that I think we really need to start considering and thinking about and centering, not just thinking about, but actually centering are the people who are actively harmed by these uh, policies. You know, if you offshore the manufacturing and close and you take that factory to Bangladesh, um, what are those factory workers' lives like? Um, And it it turns out not very good. there's a really good Planet Money pod, video podcast series uh, where they make a t-shirt. And to me, the most powerful part of that, it walks through how it goes from cotton to a finished t-shirt. But the most powerful segment was where they interview garment workers. And they interview two different workers and how subtle shifts in, in comparing them. You know, one person was in Colombia, I believe, uh, and she worked at the garment factory, but was also starting a business and, you know, had some vision of social mobility, but the uh, Bangladeshi um, garment worker that they interviewed was essentially entrapped in working in this factory. Um, And it was really sad um, sitting, you know, it definitely changed my perspective. And and I think really we need to center those perspectives when we talk about and think about global citizenship or globalization in this case. Um, Wasn't... When you're talking about that, it it reminded me of, I think, Marx talks about this separation from the consumer not seeing the means of production, right? right? And this separation ends up creating this kind of gap where we don't know what goes into things. We actually think wood comes from Home Depot, right? Uh, And we don't understand the processing of it. Or we think the fabric comes from the mall, you know, the stores that you go to. Uh, without actually seeing or even having to think about the other things. So those things become invisible over time. And this seems to be intentional. I would, yeah. I mean, if we saw how plastic was manufactured, for example, that everything kind of comes packaged in, we probably would never, and and all the pollution that comes about as a result of that, even if we happen to recycle plastic, there's a lot of pollution that comes about from that. And so even something, yeah, if you, when we're so far removed, we don't even, we can take one piece and zoom in on it and it's like this really harmful thing. I think that it, um, you know, it, it, part of capitalist beliefs is that, you know, consumers have perfect information. Well, we definitely don't have perfect information, right? We don't know the true cost of what we're buying. Uh, we don't understand that on purpose. Uh, Yeah. On purpose. And then not only that, but you know, I don't, would we want to? That becomes the other thing is that there's this play between our, our desires, our desires to own that $25 pair of shoes that, you know, if we were to build it ourselves, yeah, like as craftsmen, and there's several books and things that have gone through this process. There's one book by an economist that just goes through the path of a pencil. There's yeah. an artist who tried to make a toaster by himself. <laughs> and the idea would be it would cost like $30,000 to make a toaster yourself. Yeah. If you had to go get the mine the oil products and you had to pull this out and then you right. had to cast it and mold it and, and all these things, make the filaments yourself and do everything from scratch. Right. Like what does that actually cost? And then we really start getting into this specialization 
of yeah. each person, each company, each culture, like each nation seems to offer something a little bit different. Right. Maybe cheap labor, maybe access to rare minerals. Yeah. And and that can be really good if, you know, if what we're doing is helpful for people um, in general. And that's not to say everyone necessarily needs to make, uh, you know, $85 an hour or, you know, the wage debate is, is a huge issue and, and I think you know when people do specialize they should be compensated fairly for that um, oftentimes people are not in a position to be able to negotiate their salaries um, and so it keeps them trapped in below you know market rates and if we want to look at it from a neoliberal perspective but it's uh, and so I'm trying I, I guess the biggest thing is that that exchange of goods and ideas and labor and putting things together uh, and resources can be very beneficial. Obviously, it gives us the toaster. It gives us our cars. Um, you know, it's helped us tremendously. But I think we're kind of entering that, that phase in our existence uh, where we need to really think about well, what, yes, we've been able to do all these things. But, hey, should we have done all these things? Mm, yeah. That whole, you know, Jurassic Park, you never start, started to consider <laughs> yeah. whether we should uh, build roads and cars and what neighborhoods are we going to destroy in that process and different things like that? Um, and uh, what, what kind of harm are we going to cause the, the earth? And, you know, we just, we really need to, I think, start considering that. And, you know, this idea that all of these things are intractable, I just, I don't personally buy because we designed everything that we're in right now. If we wanted to center ethical consumption of products if we wanted this in our ethical manufacturing products or rewarding people for their skills we could yes things would cost more but everyone you know to me is a cheap t-shirt worth you know subjugating someone else in a distant country to you know extreme poverty no yeah you know so i only need a few t-shirts uh (laughs) or yeah and this is I think it's a kind of utilitarian thought experiment, but there's this idea of happiness, right? And there's this idea that utilitarianism and you're trying to produce the most good for the most people or the most happiness for the most people. And that is a fluctuating cycle whenever you get outside the local because one of the Peter Singer things is, of course, if you see a kid drowning and you're wearing a $100 pair of shoes, you're going to jump in and save the kid drowning because... Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, Because, you know, in theory, most people would jump in because the shoes are not worth the price of... No, no. Yeah. It's the the hypothetical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the child's life is much more valuable. Right. And then they just go, okay, well, let's get rid of geography. What if this person, this kid is in Africa? Will you send them $10 to save their life with a mosquito net? Right. And most people are like, ah, uh, right? Yeah. And so that immediacy, remove the locality and the geography. And all of a sudden, um, the context switches and all of a sudden that hundred bucks is worth, you know, spending on a pair of shoes. And so there's this kind of changeover, but when they were talking about happiness and these kind of things, there's this crazy analogy, and I can't remember who came up with it, but if you had a city and it was fueled by, everyone is a, say, a 90% happiness level, but what it took to keep everyone at 90% happiness was one child to be tortured every day, and they put this child in a basement, and they just this child suffers day after day. But that's what it took to make sure everyone else was 90% happy. Would you still be willing to live in that community? Mm-hmm. 
And this is just one of these thought experiments that you right. just go, what is your happiness worth? Right. Yeah. Uh, there's all these books about happiness hypothesis and happiness is this metric right. and everyone talks about happiness all the time. Yeah. And then we also have to look at what is causing most of our happiness seems to be consumption. Right. Yeah. Desire and consumption, desire fulfillment with consumption. And you wonder if you got rid of those, if there might be a different metric that we could use to actually maintain right. happiness. Right. And, and that's a good point. Or even what has it, it does consumption actually drive our happiness or have we retrained ourselves to derive happiness from consumption and like oh i got this new toy i got this yeah. new uh t-shirt uh, which yours is way nicer than than mine by the way the uh <laughs> my the idea yeah the, the waking up app okay. this is from yeah so this is uh my meditation shirt oh nice okay <laughs> yeah. yeah there we go um so that's why the light is off it's off and upside thing, down you're thinking yeah <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it kind of, it bring, definitely brings to, to the forefront of my mind at this moment, you know, thinking about, well, what really makes us happy and yes, um, you know, going out to eat and eating a delicious meal does make me happy in the moment, but is it long-term happiness? Mm. Um, you know, maybe in some cases, if you have that, you know, if you go to, uh, you know, uh, Jiro Sushi, um, restaurant in Japan and have that that's probably something you would remember and be really happy about for the rest of your life but you know if you go to uh you know applebee's uh, i don't know you know what i mean like it's fun and it's okay i guess i haven't been in a long time but it's uh you know how happy are you with that and so um long term and i don't know it's just it's uh at what point do we have to really stop and think about and not just think about, but then how do we turn our thoughts into actions and how do we change systems? Because we, we individually can do all we want, but if, you know, Amazon and Apple and Google are continuing these practices that are really harmful, um, they're, you know, that's not going to do too much. So, yeah, that's one of the things I was kind of thinking as well is I wonder if, and there is a tendency to quite often offload the responsibility from the citizens. Yeah. You know, let's let's blame it on the way that marketing has messed with us, right? Yeah. Um, so marketing did this to us. And then the yeah. other one is, no, 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 production did this to us. Yeah. But it was all done to the citizen. Yeah. And there's this other idea that maybe the citizen has their own voice and can take action in some way. Yeah. So how do you see that shaping out? Well, I think first we have to really think about, we have to go back to our first question and think about well, what is a citizen? Like, mm -hmm. What does that mean to be a citizen? And really, if you strip away the nationality, if you strip away the good, really it just means to be. It means to, to be a person and to exist. Everyone is a citizen, and in my opinion, I should say. And I'm just kind of thinking about this, and, and I, I'm sure other people have wrote about it much more eloquently and better than, than this, but, you know, the idea that, well, you're not a citizen until you're 18 and can vote. You're not a citizen until this. You're not, it, it really becomes difficult. And, and from a teaching perspective, you know, when I'm teaching someone who maybe has, you know, just moved to the United States, um, who's not a citizen, but we're talking about citizenship, are they not a citizen? Well, no, they're a citizen. Like, they're a part of our community and our class and everything else. And so I think that, um, you know, that idea kind of gets we have to address that first. And then when you were talking about that and I, I, uh, I'll need you to repeat your question, but I'll just say this first. I was thinking about Charlie Chaplin in modern times and the, the factory scene and how he is essentially just like constantly like, 
you know, riveting the, the bolts or whatever and sneezes and has to go back and get caught up. And all he does is, you know, turn those rivets and he goes, you know, obviously goes into the machine and, you know, he turns into everything he does is a, a riveter. He, he, he is a, uh, uh, a riveting assemblage, so to speak, if we want to, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. all that's, and it's, so what's his life like? That's all, that was it for a while until he finally snapped and, you know, destroyed the factory and uh, <laughs> everything yeah. else. So, Well, and yeah, I think that's the classic thing that we're talking about too, right? Is if you can center this around humans, yeah. but whenever you try to turn the human into an efficient machine, yeah. Would, at that point, you're commodifying the human, right? And yeah. so Taylorism really did a lot of workplace practices in the factories that turned the made sure that everything was about efficiency. So efficiency yeah. became the primary gauge by which you did everything, and thus humans had to become as efficient as machines. Right. And the interesting thing is you may be able to do that for a while, but what are the costs? Yeah. And if you take the, the idea that if you do anything for 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, what are you going to take home with you? What happens to your mind then, right? Yeah. Um, and there's this idea that you can only know a human in their off hours. Right. So who do you become after spending 10 to 12 hours a day behaving like a machine, becoming commodified? Do you go out and equally commodify everything else? Right. Are you, Or do you turn on the animal side, right? Um, yeah. Because you had to suppress it for so long that then you turn back into your evolutionary behaviors. Yeah, that 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 question is a little bit above my pay grade. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know either. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but I do think that uh, that you know I was thinking I was uh, earlier today you know scrolling through Twitter as one does and I came across a tweet by uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin who had wrote uh, a book that I love and has been uh, is just really incredible uh, called Race After Technology um, that I recommend uh, everyone go buy and read um, and. She tweeted uh, about uh, if she was repeating an account of a Amazon warehouse worker in Bessemer, Alabama, and they are currently, you know, deciding whether to unionize at that uh, Amazon warehouse. And if it does, it could have potential ripple effects throughout the whole company. And and getting at to your point where they track your movements, they track how efficient you are treating you like a machine. And then there's obviously issues where people aren't able to use the restroom because it counts against them and you think about well what does that mean for you know who can you know navigate those situations and everything else and and what costs are you know how difficult that is and and at that point you aren't human and you are being treated like a machine and while certain people might think humans are just computers and machines that can do whatever there's other things to us that make us be um and you know, that's kind of what life is, whether it's in humans. And I think personally animals have that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's things about us that don't make sense. There's things about us that go beyond that machine like uh, environment where we're just, you know, riveting bolts every, you know, it, it, there's more to it than that. And I think that um, not to get too philosophical on this philosophy podcast, but uh, <laughs> but it, it does. Uh, you talk about that made brought that to my mind and i wanted to highlight that and 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 everything else Uh, it's it's very interesting so yeah i think that that's this is the other side of this is privileging humans right um i think there seems to be a pendulum swing where we're trying to return back to what humans are and maybe that's because we do live in such a utopian environment right that we're not 
scraping by for survival. True. Yeah. So we have this sort of privilege to be able to look around and say, can we be humans again? Yeah. And to be able to make decisions um, that have long-term large, maybe potentially large ripple effects that can go outward where, no, we are as a society no longer going to endorse uh, sweatshop slavery, so to speak, or serfdom, whatever you want to call it, where people get trapped within these vicious cycles. And then one of the things that's really funny is if we privilege intelligence most of these sweatshops are also taking the intelligent people out like richard Sennett talks a little bit about how in a work pool then say the best auto mechanics are having a hard time surviving because that's just sort of paycheck to paycheck and so they right. can't get a loan so they need to go work at the auto factory the audio factory has brain deadening behavior right. as they were calling it and okay, and so you yeah. end up taking the most talented people in a region and putting them into brain deadening factory labor because it's the only way they can get a loan from the bank yeah. so you have these systems that are set up and each one of these systems sucks in talent as well as cheap labor and that actually never allows these really intelligent people to actually participate in creative endeavors or attentive endeavors right uh, that's interesting yeah I, I had never even really considered that but uh yeah yeah it's it's just one of those ripple effects that once you set up a financial system that operates a certain way and rewards certain things um and then for survival and security then we end up having to make compromises yeah and this would be i guess that kind of basic idea that we want to set up a sort of survival base so that everyone can at least survive. Yeah. And then we can go on top of that. But when your survival is in question, it's really hard to make decisions that have any kind of ethics to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it, that is a really good point. It's, if you're just surviving, that's, I mean, obviously it's going to be your number one focus. So, um, but like you were mentioning, you know, I, for a lot of people that we have the time, like I personally have the time to consider these things and think about these things. Um, and you know, we're talking, you were talking about, you know, the centering of what it means to be human. And I think part of citizenship needs to also be extended into, uh, what does it mean for animals to exist? You know, the way that we treat animals around the world, you know, essentially in, in some cases, uh, if they, if, you know, whole animals exist, purely to end up as food for us to consume. Uh, and then the way they're treated along that process is not humane, which that has been well documented in a lot of other areas and spaces. And so, you know, thinking about how, you know, and I'm not saying, cause I, you know, I, per, I still personally eat meat and I'm trying to eat less of it. And that's a whole, you know, back and forth thing I'm thinking about and trying to come to terms with, but really, uh, so I'm not, you know, judging anyone for eating meat or saying we shouldn't, but it's, um, it is something to consider and think about. And again, beyond just thinking about, you know, we don't want to say thoughts and prayers for the animals, but what can we do as, as, you know, citizens, as humans that are currently centered to, you know, make animal life better to where they don't just exist purely for consumption. And what does that mean for us mm-hmm. when we live, you know, probably less meat options available at certain prices, but yeah. And this is back to that sort of, consumptive tendency yeah and i mean what 
there is a phrase out there that you know what's done to the least of us is done to all of us yeah. right that it basically shapes your soul and that goes back to that story of that town with the small child and if you had right. to torture the town to be happy or, or sorry torture the child <laughs> for the town to be happy then you know you have options to leave to move yeah. that town or you have options to fight back against that system so what kind of i mean what kind of steps do you think are possible for us to start taking so I think it, it definitely has to be, we have to start looking at what we can do to change the systems of power that we have. So thinking about who we, obviously it starts with elections, right? Uh, in our cases, because our government does have immense power to set policies and standards and different things, you know, how businesses operate, even if sometimes they like to pretend like they don't and like, oh, well, who, who could ever stop Google from, um, you know, stealing faces and, you know, who could stop them from designing, you know, racist facial recognition technology. And, mm-hmm. you know, well, you can, you can say this is illegal and you can find them heavily to the point where it doesn't make financial sense for them to do these things. Um, yes. There's, there's options, but so I think definitely, um, you know, collectively pressuring um, uh, our government and, and other governments to decenter these harmful policies and and to again put you know humans and animals first i think that's kind of one of the first steps we can take and then more broadly as we start you know our businesses because humans all you know even amazon was started by a person you know if we are starting businesses if we are operating you know if we're kind of going through our lives really thinking about you know what we are doing and what that really means i think is um, an important step and then how can we talk about this and spread this to other people too? And it's, you know, obviously I don't think, you know, it's, it's really hard to convince someone of your opinion, especially if they don't want to hear it. But I do think that there's times where we can talk about stuff in real life or, you know, online as well, um, where we can share this, these ideas and have actual conversations and think about these things. And because um, I think a lot of these issues, if, we, if you talk to most people, most people would agree yeah, we shouldn't treat animals the way that they're treated um, for if they're, you know, living in these inhumane conditions. Um, you know, I think there's definitely areas where people can, you know, understand each other because I think we all kind of understand what it means to be alive and exist. And, you know, so that, that, I, I would say those are some good starting points. And then also really thinking about who is centered in in our policies and just kind of taking a step back and, and uh seeing the broader picture and thinking, you know, realizing that A, we're here temporarily, uh, and B, that for, you know, a lot of us, our existence and our state of life is not 100% due to our own successes and, like, our own willpower, right? We benefit from a lot of societal things that are in place, whether that's you know, as a white male is, is, you know, being white and male in America has certain, you know, privileges and uh, certain things I don't have to worry about. And so really thinking about, well, how does society work for me, but how does it not work for others? And how can we work to make, to correct for that injustice? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, a lot of us are quite lucky. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was reading about luck egalitarianism the other day and just this idea that we are yeah. tremendous. Some of us are tremendously lucky right. and other people aren't as lucky. And what's also fascinating is when you take that into a global context, yeah. 
even sometimes the most unlucky people in America are much more lucky than people in other countries. Right. And yet there's this tendency to forget that because we're only seeing local circumstances. Yeah. And so figuring out how to sort of keep a global perspective seems difficult. I mean, is there anything that you do to sort of maintain a larger perspective? Uh, I definitely, um, right now it's hard because uh, we're all kind of separated out and, and you know, isolated from everything. But I do try and um, not only listen and learn from other people, but try and really incorporate their work into what I do. Um, for example, um, you know, the, the I, I mentioned uh, Dr. Ruha Benjamin earlier, um, her book, Race Against Technology, has impacted how I see um, both how some of the things I've researched in terms of, you know, how we as teachers use technology that is uh, coded with racial biases, um, but then also think about, okay, so students, you know, what does this mean for them if they're being surveilled, right? What does this mean for, uh, you know, the technology we use in our class? So I don't use any um, in my classes, they have uh, certain technology that allows you to see what students are doing on their computers. Um, I don't use that uh, because it. Um, I think that oh, it's very Foucauldian, and I don't want to be <laughs> yeah. on the other side of that mirror looking, looking at, like it just it feels weird. Um, it, yeah, it's very panoptical, and I don't want to be in the middle of a panopticon ever. That's that's generally a rule in life. Like, try not to be in the middle of a panopticon. Yeah, um, I used to just tell people, it's like, I, I I didn't get this job to be a cop. Yeah. You know, I, I'm your teacher. Right. I'm not, you know, yeah. my, my job is not to police you. Right. But that is, I think, it's it sort of become a default stance of a lot of educators where, and, and you know, they're, they're doing it to, you know, pr- try and prevent cheating um, and academic, um, you know, plagiarism and different things like that. And I get it. I guess my, my thing is, well, how could we redesign schooling, especially right now where everyone's in different space. And, and yeah. that's another thing. What does that mean as a white male teacher to be, uh, surveilling students if they're using a lockdown browser like Proctero or, or some of these, um, uh, companies that will track your face and watch your room behind you to see if anyone comes in or your eye movements, you know, what does that mean to be looking in on my students' personal spaces? Um, it, it it's it's really a very, uh, I don't think it's really been thought through from an ethics perspective and from a privacy perspective and a constitutional perspective. Like, what space is yours? What right to privacy do you have? And so rather than saying, well, we have to make sure they're not cheating on this multiple choice test, well, how else could we assess student learning? How, what does it mean to learn something, first of all? Is it answering a multiple choice question? I think most, you know, educators would probably say, well, I mean, it can tell you a little bit, but it's not the best way to assess something. So, um, you know, I, that, that's one thing that I've really thought about is, you know, this technology is here. We uh, can use it, but should we? Um, you know, that sort of techno-ethical perspective in my, mm. um, that, and that's something that I've learned a lot from my doctoral advisor, Dr. Dan Kretka who has written a lot about technoethics and education and sort of thinking about that. So it is, um, it's pretty wild to think about what we're able to do um, as teachers and, and what kind of information we have. And, and also what kind of information schools are expected to follow to maintain for, you know, discipline policies and things like that. That's one of the other parts of this is a lot of this seems to be 
the pressure seems to be coming down, right? There's a mm-hmm. there's a legacy of testing that has been proven to be racially biased, and yeah. there's a, there's all these kind of ways that they're looking for something in a yeah. student, right? And this idea that we're somehow mining our population for potential, and then we will lift those people up, and everyone else gets left behind, right? right? There's and then they call no child left behind, and then yeah. anyone who's been a teacher is like. Have you ever been in a classroom? Right. Like, do you see how this functions? Yeah. Um, well, and especially when they change how those tests are scored to where it's on the bell curve. So they say, okay, well, what are our scores? Okay, well, then this is the passing rate. So the goal of No Child Left Behind was every student's going to be proficient at these things by 2009. Well, if we change what proficient is, you're never going to get everyone to what was proficient in 2001. And so it, and that's one of those things that personally never made sense to me. Um you know, growing up in that system and then now as a teacher looking back and, and uh, seeing how that works. And it's just, that's one of the things I don't understand about statistics from an education perspective. And I have friends who are very into statistics and educational statistics who, you know, and it's, it, I commend them for learning it and understanding it. That's just one of the things that never really made sense to me um, yeah. on a personal level. Nope. That's, uh, so this is also one of those things that we're, we know there's intelligent people out there. There's smart people that are coming up with interesting ways to do all sorts of things. Um, when it comes to something like citizenship or global citizenship or promoting and centering humans and animals and some sort of cruelty-free world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, where are these smart people on those topics, right? What What is the next step there? I keep thinking about whether or not they're working in government, why they're not in government. Maybe they are. Um, And then I also think about the smart people being sucked into things like Google, right? Because of the salary. Right. Or Facebook. Facebook, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would. So there are a lot of smart people, I think, in, you know, traditional academic spaces. But that space is getting more and more marginalized due to budget cuts and other things in the United States, at least. Um, I've personally, the United Nations with their, you know, UNESCO um, uh, issues and and from an education perspective, they have the education for sustainable development and uh, other various things. I think they're doing a lot of interesting work, although, again, a little flawed because it does tend to center the the neoliberal market perspective of, yes, we have to sustainably develop so we can continue to consume all of these things, but sustainably. Um, And so it's not really thinking about that. But there's, you know, I... As far as specific people in that space, uh, you know, it's there's there are a lot of really great um, people out there. I, I just I can't think of them right now. No. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe what we'll do is uh, throw some links on the website yeah. uh, when we're through just, you know, various things we've read or heard. And uh, I think there is a, a general idea that, at least for me, the one of the ways I think about it is things is generational. Yeah. Uh, is that if the younger generation has certain access to things and they find certain values in some things and not other things. Right. And some of this might be social capital. I'm kind of interested in how social capital tends to work in different areas. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this of course comes from reading about capitalism and what it does to individuals and how it strips away certain parts of their identity. It strips apart their history. So you have to be flexible all the time. You mm-hmm. have to deal in abstractions all the time. Right. And so we end up um, de-championing and disenfranchising anyone that does something like works with their hands. Yeah. And so we end up having these hierarchies and social strata that become formed. And I'm sort of interested in how that can also be reversed. 
Right. And of course, I'm thinking of school as the place to start for something like this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, you know, unfortunately, schools have, you know, gotten uh, into the uh, neoliberal uh, mindset of, you know, we have, and, and I'm thinking of, you know, there are any number of schools in this area that have, you know, two, three, four thousand students in them. Um, and does that actually uh, work from the perspective of, you know, yes, it, it works like, you know, the students are the, the things that they're able to do in schools now in terms of there's, you know, at, at the school I teach at, there's robotics classes, there's, you know, all sorts of, you know, assume that there's agricultural classes, there's, uh, you know, lots of opportunities for students to learn things you know, health sciences, um, you know, being EM, EMT techs and, and everything else that were not around when I was in high school that are really interesting and cool. Um, but I think that more, largely the idea that we can educate, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the exact same way, you know, thinking broadly of, okay, everyone's going to take these tests, these standardized tests. I think that we need to really take a step back and not do, I, I personally don't think we should administer those tests with the stakes that they have so that's um, being a riveter again right yeah exactly because yeah. that's what it's like okay well do you you know understand this small tiny facet of u.s history that's oh this is also from the white male perspective mm-hmm. uh you know do you know about you know these tiny little details that don't really mean anything when it comes to citizenship or kind of understanding what it means to exist in the united states you know, we learn the history, kind of, sort of, of one tiny version of it. Um, but we don't actually step back and think, well, what does this mean? Yes, this is the history, but what does that mean for me right now? What does that mean for people in the past? And that was one of the things that I think, you know, not only Howard Zinn wrote about in the People's History of the United States, but then there have been um, five follow-up books that are kind of in that same vein from the People's History of the United States to, I think there's a uh, queer history of the United States, an indigenous history of the United States, a black woman's history of the United States, um, and so on. And, and we will definitely link those in the show notes because, you know, it sort of can show, okay, this is what people were experiencing, these people were experiencing at that point in history. And I think that those ideas, while not easily quantifiable or ending up on a standardized test, can help students understand that, um, you know, what their society is like and kind of see, okay, this is kind of the same in this way, this is different in this way. And what it, it, you sort of see, okay, well, this is what people did then. Well, this is what we can do now. And so that, you know, one of the um, the best things about being a teacher is seeing, you know, the, the activist work that students of mine have gone on to do. Um, and I am in no way taking credit for it um, at all. They, they The work that they do is, is really interesting. Um, you know, I've had students you know, lead and organize March for Our Lives marches uh, against gun violence. Um, I have a student who has uh, done work um, bringing to light issues of genocide in the Middle East. Um, and, you know, it's it's just really cool to, uh, and, and again, talking with people who experience those issues and bringing that, you know, to other people like me who would never have heard their stories or anything like that. Um, so that's, you know, the ideas are there, the foundation is there um, for this. It's just kind of rethinking what we do with our time. Because the other thing with standardized tests, too, that people don't often consider is the amount of time it takes to give it, not just to give the test, but the review time. You know, you review three, four weeks before the test. You take the test, and after the test, you need a week to decompress before you can pick back up with stuff. 
because it is exhausting and it's we you know the stress on students on teachers because of the stakes on the test again it's not necessarily the test themselves it's the stakes it's the ratings that come along with it the funding that used to come along with it that can really make it um, a lot of pressure and stress and I think that Really, if we, I, I did the math once, if we eliminated that, it's something like, you know, 15% of the school year is spent mm-hmm. on those tests. Um, and that's a lot of time. I mean, and if you think about, especially in a history class, you learn the history to then be able to do something with it at the end, but then you take away all that time to do something with it. You know, that's a, so it's, it's, there's no easy answer, but I think that the first thing we could do is, yeah, to step back from the stakes and step back from the tests. And, you know, maybe we actually give tests for certain data points that and know what they're good for, but not solely rely upon them for ratings. Yeah, there's, I guess, I've read two different books that the authors specifically point out problems with testing. Yeah. And they really jump on it as, once again, this kind of, this thing that um, infiltrates our entire society. And sets up winners and losers, yep. and it sets up a lot of other problems that cause contentions for people. That it basically says you, as an individual, are not good enough, right? And rather than, and then people have to find something else they're good at, right? Yeah. And so there's this kind of inherent problem with searching for the thing that you're good at, so that you then know who you are and how you can make it in society. Right. So this idea of inherently just being an individual having value it really ceases to work whenever we're commodifying people. When we're looking for talent, when we're searching for potential, when we're searching for ability, yeah. then it sort of breaks down how we're supposed to like just have good people, right? right? Because you're not just a good person, you're only good for your function. Yeah. And so that goes back to that factory mindset and of course commodification of the individual, of the self, right? Yeah. And self-streamlining so that you modify yourself to be good at these tests. Right. You modify yourself to just work on process-based questions mm-hmm. and to articulate certain things and then forget the information two weeks later because you don't need it anymore. Right. You just train yourself for temporary momentary tasks. And what does it actually look like when you're a 40-year-old person? Yeah. Like right? What kind of individual are you? Um, what kind of relationships do you have? What kind of long-term goals do you have in your life? Well, maybe they're all just short-term and you're just running on momentum. So these yeah. become some of these sort of philosophical philosophical, or not even philosophical, sociological and ethnographic kind of con- problems yeah. that we're going to continue to run into um, when our society is based, up around, based around these things. Of course, on the other side, we can look back into the past and we can see varying and negative consequences from having super community-centered groups. Right. Um, because there's in and out groups and there's hierarchies yeah. and people are really, really good uh, at gauging each other and setting up systems in yeah. which um, you're in and you're out. Right. We're, it, as sort of a hierarchical ape-based species, it's what we're the best at. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and meanwhile, all these kind of things with statistics and logic, apparently we have trouble with. Yeah. We have trouble employing them over the long term. We don't understand exponential rises, only linearity. Right. There's all these kind of problems that are built into us neurologically that I wish we could set up counters for. Um, I keep thinking that wouldn't it be great if schools taught meditation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that would be immensely beneficial. I mean, as a teacher, that would be beneficial for me to have time. And, and I could. I have, you know, I have lunch. I have a conference period and and I can I have my space to decompress but it would be beneficial for students you know to have that time for decompression you know kind of think about what they've been learning about all day and then come back 
refreshed and ready to go. And it is a skill. How do you meditate? You, you know, most people aren't Ron Swanson. They can't just sit there and just think about nothing for an hour and a half straight on their first try. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, that man's got a gift. He does. Yeah, he does. Uh, speaking of, of working with your hands, um, yeah, you know, yeah, making canoes right. and everything. Yeah, uh, totally be a libertarian. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it's things like that. And, and it gets back to the point of what is knowledge? Like, what is? Why have we chosen these subjects? And, and I'm kind of now thinking back to social studies as a subject when it was founded in 1913 and it was like theorized and written down and founded and you know a bunch of white men got together and wrote about it and and at that time you know if you were a woman you legally couldn't vote if you were a black male you probably you know almost probably couldn't vote depending upon you know the cities like there were your the voting percentage of Black men had gone down dramatically from the Reconstruction era in the United States. And yet we're starting a subject whose core value is citizenship. And one of the first subjects that was kind of the in the capstone, if you will, of social studies was called Problems of Democracy, where students would identify problem and or identify problems in society, in the United States society, and work to address those problems. Um, and that has kind of fallen by the wayside for in favor of U.S. government or civics or economics or different things uh, in, in more modern times. But this idea that, well, we're starting the subject about citizenship where, you know, we've really limited who can vote in this country. So, yes, people are citizens, but you don't have that right to vote. You know, your social power is much less than other people. And so what did that mean for teachers of social studies in 1913? What did that mean for, you know, black teachers teaching black students? What did that mean for, um, you know, different things? And, and sort of that idea of how different groups have worked for different power in society and what that power looked like um, is really interesting. And, um, you know, it's it's just that that idea of what, um, what it means to when you start a subject like that, like from its beginning, it's had issues, right? And and I don't think we fully addressed that in, mo in most schools. You know, what we teach and in, in what the standards are in Texas is racially biased. What the, you know, um, and, and that impacts the textbooks. And, and there have been, the I'm thinking, I had just watched recently The Revisionaries, um, which is a documentary about how standards are written in Texas. And you realize that you know those um that that process is extremely flawed is that i have a friend who i think helped make that movie okay yeah, yeah it was and, it came out of um someone did it for a grad school thing yeah came. i think it was scott thurman is my buddy who okay. was working and it was either that one or one that was very similar to that okay but yeah it's it's also fascinating to sort of see how um religion right ideology yeah. shapes these things right and so you can there's a lot of kind of complications that are inherent in them and of course as we sort of deconstruct things and pull them apart there's only so much you can stuff back into a kid's head right right so we can't maybe share yeah. with them all the histories all at once right but the idea that we are offering this these broader glimpses exactly and we're telling them through individual more personalized narratives should have an impact right and we should have the freedom as teachers to um in, in just ways be able to 
because that's the other thing too is that if you just say okay everyone has the freedom to teach whatever you know you could have a teacher that is you know a white supremacist who teaches those things to their students and yeah. there's no accountability there but i think that you know that more broadly i think that we need to do a better job when teaching teachers teaching future teachers how to teach about centering and I'm, I'm definitely not the first person to say this and within the social studies i mean um gloria dr gloria ladson billings and all, with her work on you know culturally culturally relevant pedagogy and culturally um and critical race theory and education and everything else and and all of the incredible scholarship that's come out of that um dr tyrone howard um and many others that are escaping me at the moment. Um, it's it's just it's very interesting to think about. Um, you know how can we make social studies and in my case and more broadly education more just in how we teach and how it's operated um, is yeah. an important point to think about. <laughs> oh no, it's a great point. Always just yeah, watching for the subalterns and you know yeah. really looking into how these things are built and developed and you know it's it's really great talking to you about it because on occasion you know i lose track of what's going on with the education system it's really nice to hear that of course you're digging into this yeah and and that's the thing it's it's there and there are a lot of great people doing you know great work um it's uh but it's it's definitely at this point still an uphill climb to introduce like you were mentioning you know, religion, that's another area where we could, you know, there, teach students about the world's religions and break that apart and, you know, help them actually understand different beliefs and different things that people have. And it's, uh, it, yeah, you know, it's, it's complicated. It's difficult. Nothing's easy. Um, <laughs> but it's, I think, worth it. I mean, it, you know, if you're really thinking about it, it's, it's you're talking about you know, helping people understand themselves as humans and what it means to going back to our, our initial question of citizenship and global citizenship and, you know, what it means to exist as a human in your city, state, country, globe, um, you know, is difficult, but really uh, can help make your society better. Thank you very much for sticking around and listening to that. I hope you enjoyed it. We will have another interview next week, and it's really kind of about humans as apes. It's a pretty fun conversation. It's a little bit shorter than this one. And also, of course, if you enjoy the show, please like, rate, do all those good things. And on the website, letusthinkaboutit.com, there's a place to contribute, $5 or $5 per month, whatever you feel like doing to help us out here. All right, many thanks. Bye-bye.